There was a rich man who was clothed in purple and fine linen, who feasted sumptuously every day. And at his gate was laid a poor man named Lazarus, covered with sores, who desired to be fed with what fell from the rich man's table. Moreover, when the dogs came and licked, uh, moreover, even the dogs came and licked his sores. The poor man died and was carried by angels to Abraham's side. The rich man also died and was buried. And in Hades, being in torment, he lifted up his eyes and saw Abraham far off and Lazarus at his side. And he called out, Father Abraham, have mercy on me and send Lazarus to dip the end of his finger in water and cool my tongue, for I am in anguish in this flame. But Abraham said, Child, remember that you in your lifetime received good things, and Lazarus in like manner bad things. But now he is comforted here, and you are in anguish. And besides all this, between us and you a great chasm has been fixed, in order that those who would pass from here to you may not be able, and none may cross from there to us. And he said, Then I beg you, Father, to send him to my father's house, for I have five brothers, so that he may warn them, lest they also come in this place of torment. But Abraham said, They have Moses and the prophets, let them hear them. And he said, No, Father Abraham, but if someone goes to them from the dead, they will repent. And he said to him, If they do not hear Moses and the prophets, neither will they be convinced if someone should rise from the dead. Let's pray before we start in. God, we thank you for your word. We thank you that it's been preserved for us to study, uh, to consider as a community, to be challenged by. Lord, we pray that uh, you would speak to us this evening through your word. Lord, that you would be honored and lifted up by the preaching of your word, that your uh, gospel would be proclaimed here in the heavenlies. And uh, we thank you, God, that you're faithful to apply this message to our hearts. We pray, Lord, that we would be willing to receive it, that we would respond uh, as you've called us to respond to this, Lord. Uh, We pray this all in Christ's name. Amen. So uh, today's message is called On the Outside Looking In. Um, And I wanted to start just by an illustration that I I saw, you know, I saw a video this week, often looking, watching uh, like wimp.com, over my lunch period, so a lot of good aggregation of videos. If you're looking for a very concise aggregation of great videos from the internet, wimp.com is where you want to be. So check that out. Um, plug for them. I didn't get any uh, commission for that. So, um, But they had a video on this week uh, that was a few guys from Brussels, and they were uh, putting together this project to connect cities, various cities in Europe by video screen. So they were going to, their plan is basically to raise funds in order to set up these huge video screens all across Europe so that people in Paris can see people in Madrid, people in London can see people in in Brussels, uh, you know, and so on and so forth. And they think that they'll be able to do a a number of fun things like uh, speed dating through this, uh, through this you know, long-distance TV screen, uh, or, um, you know, I, I guess interacting with representatives from the EU while they're in Brussels. So uh, anyway, they've got all these great ideas of how they're going to use these monstrous screens. Um, 
in order to, to see each other from, from long distances. And we see sort of a, a similar situation here uh, in our passage, as you might have noticed, there's a great distance between uh, Lazarus and the rich man when he, when he ends up being in heaven, this chasm that is fixed. Um, so I thought this idea of these video screens was kind of funny. I mean, the reality is, like, how, how much can you do with just seeing someone on a screen? At some point, relationship has to go beyond a screen, and, and uh, there, there are limitations to it. You, you can't be in contact or, or help someone with a physical need by just seeing them on the screen. You can merely see them. You're blocked uh, by distance and time and, and ability in order to really interact and, and, and solve problems with an individual that is on a screen somewhere else in the, in the whole continent. Um, and we'll see a similar thing is, is true here. The fact is we are limited by our abilities and, our, and, our, and even the, the, um, the realities that God has set up uh, to, to help people in, in some instances, and chiefly in the case when, uh, when we have passed away, there's no way for us to help people here. And so uh, we have to be diligent as Christians to respond to the call that God has placed in our life to share the riches that the Lord has given us in Christ with those around us, because uh, when we're in heaven, we won't be able to help them. The only time we can share the good news of Jesus Christ is while we're alive in this life. And for those who maybe listen that aren't Christians, the only time to respond to the message is in this life. After this life, there's no way to respond. There will be a fixed chasm between us. Just like these screens are in different cities and no one, you can't really uh, interact. You can't hug the person from, from Paris if you're in Madrid. You might want to, but you can't. And the same is true in this, in this case. You have to make the decision uh, before you die because once you die, the situations are fixed. There's a chasm between us. And so we'll see that as we go through this passage uh, today. So the first thing this passage talks about is the fact that Lazarus is on the outside. Uh, so the first point we're looking at is that Lazarus is on the outside. We see in the first couple verses, verses uh, 19 to 21 actually, that uh, the, the setting that we have is Lazarus and a rich man. And so I'll read it just to refresh us again. It says, There was a rich man who was clothed in purple and fine linen and who feasted sumptuously every day. So a couple things here about the rich man. The situation with the rich man is that he's filthy, filthy rich. I mean, what's being described here is uh, purple cloth, which is a sign of opulence, um, and the second thing there, fine linen, essentially says that he's got really nice underwear. So um, he's got really good linens. He's got uh, gorgeous, uh, gorgeous clothing that goes over those. Um, and then every day he is fulfilling himself uh, in, in luxury. He's indulging in luxury each and every day. He has all, uh, all that he needs and beyond that. And that's contrasted strongly with the picture we see of Lazarus. Lazarus uh, is described in verses 20-21. It says this of him. It says, And at the rich man's gate was laid a poor man named Lazarus. There's a couple of things we see uh, from the outset as it starts describing Lazarus. First thing is that he was laid there. He didn't go there. He didn't lay himself there. It's a passive tense, so Lazarus was actually put there. That means he's, he's crippled. He's a crippled man, 
not only is he poor, but he's also disabled somehow in his legs, or, or he has, he has uh, broken mobility. And um, the, the second thing that we see is that he was covered in sores. So not only is he crippled, but also he has these uh, sores or lacerations uh, all over his arms and legs. Uh, we're not sure, like, the extent of them, but it says he was covered with them. So I'm, I'm picturing that as he's got sores all over himself. Um, and the third thing we see, him, see about him is in verse 21. It says this, uh, He desired to be fed with what fell from the rich man's table. So he's crippled, he's covered in sores. All he wants is just some crumbs from the table of this rich man. That's all he desires in life, and he's seeking this every day. And the final thing we see about him is that uh, not only does he have these sores and, is he, and that he's crippled and that he's, he's looking for this food, uh, we also see that, moreover, the dogs came and licked his sores. So these sores that he's had, he can't move, so the dogs of, you know, that are around are coming and actually licking his sores. So the contrast between the rich man and Lazarus could not be greater. Um, We've got the super rich and the super poor side by side. Um, it's interesting, one thing I read this week about, about Lazarus is that uh, apparently rabbis had a, a few ways to distinguish whether someone had what they call no life. Even though they're living, they have no life in them. And the three things were this, that, uh, that an inv- individual would take food from another, that would receive their food uh, from another person. That is, they wouldn't earn it on their own, but that the food that they have to sustain them is given to them. So that indicates that an individual is, is without life. They have no life in them. Uh, the second one is that they're ruled by a wife. So they've basically got a wife that uh, is in control of the house and, and tells, tells him what to do all the time or, or whatnot. Um, and the third one is that you have a body full of sores. And so Lazarus, we see, at, at least has two of these three distinctions of an individual who has no life within himself. So you, again, the picture gets even more desperate between uh, the rich man and, and Lazarus. Uh, not only is he, you know, having these sores licked by dogs, which, you know, that would make him, what, defiled because the, do- the wild animals are, are uh, are licking his sores, so that defiles him in terms of being able to participate in worship. And so, uh, all seems to be going wrong for Lazarus. But an interesting thing is noted uh, at the very outset of this passage, and that's the fact that as Jesus is telling this story to his disciples and to the Pharisees that are, that are hearing, um, this is the first time in any of the stories that Jesus has told where he names an individual. That is, any of the stories that, he, that he's told that, you know, he's using as an illustration. This is the first one in which he names the individual, and he names the individual Lazarus. And Lazarus is a, is a form of Eleazar, and Eleazar is a very popular name uh, in, in Judaism. And so there was a high priest named Eleazar. Um, there's a, a I think Abraham, one of Abraham's inheritor, inheritors, original inheritors, was named Eleazar. And uh, the, the meaning for this name is simply, God helps. And so you're looking at this picture and you're thinking, how, how is God helping? It doesn't seem that God is helping this individual. 
Uh, but Lazarus' name indicates that God is the one that helps. So the first picture we see is that Lazarus is on the outside looking in, and the truth is that um, the rich man knows. You know, the rich man knows who this is, and the rich man also, and as we'll see later, he knows who this is. Um, the rich man has a, uh, a responsibility, actually, to care for Lazarus, because Lazarus and uh, the rich man are, are presumably uh, both Israelites, as Jesus is telling this to an Israelite audience, and basically the rich man, as, as he is not helping Lazarus with, uh, with gaining food even, is breaking a command of the Lord. And uh, that's, it's found in Deuteronomy 15, this passage that indicates the, the extent to which uh, the Israelites were supposed to care for the poor among them. God desired that no poor person be among the Israelites because he was using them representing, to represent him in the world, to be a perfect community that cared for and loved each other. And so, so he says this in, in Deuteronomy 15, verses 7 to 11. He says, If among you one of your brothers should become poor in any of your towns within your land that the Lord your God is giving you, you shall not harden your heart or shut your hand against your poor brother, but you shall open your hand to him and lend him sufficient for his need, whatever it may be. Take care lest there be an unworthy thought in your heart and you say, the seventh year, the year of release where all your debts are are forgiven, uh, is near, and your eye look grudgingly on your poor brother, and you give him nothing, and he cry out against, uh, to the Lord against you, and you be guilty of, of sin. You shall give to him freely, and your heart shall not be grudging when you give to him, because for this the Lord your God will bless you in all your work and all that you undertake, for there will never cease to be poor in your land. So first, there's never going to be, uh, never going to be time where there aren't poor people in your midst. And so he says, to wrap up this passage, therefore I command you, you shall open wide your hand to your brother, to the needy and the poor in your land. And so as Lazarus sits outside the gate of this rich man, as the rich man comes in and goes out and comes in and goes out and sees Lazarus laid here, unable to move, just wanting for a morsel of bread from the table, he is ignoring this command that God has given his people to care for one another in all their needs. So the rich man is, is ignoring this command that, that God has given, given him. Um, you know, this is, really a, this is really a challenge to us as, as Americans. We, you know, we've heard many times that in America we're ultra-rich and, and uh, you know, we're in the, the top percentage of anyone in the world in terms of wealth uh, no matter what, what strata that we're in in America, we are more wealthy than anybody uh, in the rest of the world. And um, the facts are startling about, about poverty in the world. And I'll just share a few with, few with you. I mean, there, there are tons that you could look up and just, you know, realize how, how poor and desperate many people in, in the world are. And just like we we're talking about Sam going to Cuba later, I mean, uh, there are con- so many countries where, uh, where poverty is just a way of life where people are sitting day by day just wanting for a morsel of bread. So these are some facts. A, a couple, two billion children uh, from the, of, of two billion children uh, from the developing world, so not even the third world, but the developing world, 
Uh, one in seven of them have access to health care. So that's, what, 16 or 20% or something, or six, I think 16% or something. Um, one in five have access, uh, are without access to safe water. So 20% of people in developing countries, kids in developing countries, don't have clean water. And a third of children in developing countries don't have any adequate shelter. Another fact about poverty in the world, 80% of humanity lives on less than $10 a day. And obviously, you know, there are, you know, a a dollar can go further in some countries than others, but still the fact remains, less than $10 a day. Again, we we were talking about Cuba, right? $9 is what the salary for a month, you said? Yeah, so that's spread it over 30 days. It's like 33 cents or something a day or something crazy. Um, okay, here's, so here's another. The poorest 40% of the world's population account for 5% of the global income. So 40% of people only have 5% of the wealth. And in a similar way, 20% of the richest have 75% of the world's income. Um, so we see this disparity. We see the rich man and we see Lazarus in our world. And so as Americans, it's, it's our duty, and as Christians, it's our duty to look at that, and we have to respond. We have to say uh, there has to be something that we're doing with our life and the blessing that, that God has given us in order to uh, combat this, because God cares about the poor. He cares about them. And it doesn't mean that we're uh, going to be able to resolve all of this on our own, but as individuals and as, as a church— we have to look for ways to be a part of the solution at least. Um, the, only, uh, the only thing that we're charged with is what God has given us. And so out of what, what God has given us, we have to find a way uh, to be a blessing uh, to those who are lacking hope, who are poor and in need of, um, of not, not only resources, but just love and, and uh, yeah, love from the Lord. So um, that's that's. That's something we have to consider as both a church and as individuals. Uh, what, is, what is our strategy to, to not only bless the poor among us in a local context, but also the poor among us in a global context? What does that look like for us? We have to consider it. We have to look for a way to do that, uh, and we will do that. Um, so the first picture that we see, again, is Lazarus on the outside. He, in, in this life, he was given bad things, and he's uh, he's sitting at this gate, and it, the situation could not be worse for him, especially compared to the rich man that he is, he's nearby. But what we see in verses 22 to 26 is that their roles are completely reversed. In verse 22 to 26, we see that now Lazarus isn't on the inside. No, in fact, he is at Abraham's side, and the rich man is the one outside looking in. So in verse 22, we see this. The poor man died and, and was carried by angels to Abraham's side. The rich man also died and was buried. The, the first thing we see is that Lazarus was taken and, and sat by Abraham's side. I think this is an indication and an, an important distinction that we need to make as we look at this is that um, Lazarus wasn't saved, wasn't taken to Abraham's side uh, just because he was poor. It's not like, uh, you know, in heaven all the poor people are going to be there, and in hell all of the rich people are going to be there. It's just like, they just flip, and somewhere, I guess, in the middle class, you, I'm not sure where you end up, but hopefully you're on the right side of the middle class. To, that's not how it is. It's not what's being said here. 
what's being said here, and I think it's indicated, I believe it's indicated by the fact that Lazarus is taken to a specific patriarch's side, to Abraham's side, is that Lazarus knew something about who was his provider. And we even see it in the name that Jesus gives him. God is the one who helps. And Abraham is the one that recognized a very similar thing. To Abraham, his, Abraham's faith was credited to him as righteousness. In the same way as Lazarus, you know, Lazarus knows he has seen the rock bottom. And he knows that the only person he can depend on is God because he's sure can't depend on the rich man. The rich man is not giving him even a morsel from his table. So I believe that Lazarus ended up next to Abraham's side because he had faith like Abraham did. He had faith that God is his supplier. Despite the circumstances that he was looking at, God was his provider. God is the one who helps. And so he trusted his life as, as difficult and as, as hard as it was, he gave his life to, to God to be his supplier, even in these difficult situations. God is his helper. So we see that Lazarus is taken and, and sat by Abraham's side. He's, he's ushered into the presence of, of the Almighty God and sends, spends his eternity with the Lord. But we see a very different picture for the rich man. We see that the rich man is clearly on the outside looking in. Starting in verse 23, it says, uh, the rich man also died and was buried, and in Hades, being in torment, he lifted up his eyes and saw Abraham far off and Lazarus at his side. This starts off with just a, a, a difficult picture to understand. The fact is that the rich man now is, is being tormented in, in eternity, and I think the most difficult part of this picture is that not only is he being tormented, but he can see he can see that Lazarus is, is with Abraham and at, at his side, and he, he can't get there. He, he doesn't know how to get there. So not only is he being tormented because, because he's there, but he also has the knowledge that one that was sitting outside of his gate with nothing is, is at Abraham's side. And this is particularly interesting because um, what we see is that he sees Lazarus. He knows Lazarus. He knows who he was. In spite of his ignoring him throughout his time on, in life, he knew who he was. He recognized him when he saw him in heaven. He knew who Lazarus was. He knew he was the man that was sitting outside his, uh, outside his gate. He recognized him. Um, so just another powerful um, testimony of the fact that the rich man knew Lazarus, and he's all the more guilty because of that. He knew Lazarus' needs. He knew he, uh, he had sores and desired food from his table. He knew these dogs were licking him. He knew Lazarus, and he recognizes him at Abraham, Abraham's side. Um, we see the rich man as even more guilty as a result of that. So being in torment, he lifts his eyes and, and, and sees Abraham far off and Lazarus at his side. And he calls out to Father Abraham, Have mercy on me. Send Lazarus to dip the end of his finger in water to cool my tongue, for I am in anguish in this flame. The roles have completely reversed. While Lazarus was just longing for a simple morsel from the table of the rich man, now the rich man is longing for just a drip, one drip of water off the end of Lazarus' tongue 
because of the torture that he's, uh, the, the torment that he's in, in this situation. But Abraham turns to, uh, to the rich man and says, Child, remember that you in your lifetime received good things, and Lazarus in like manner bad things, but now he is comforted here, and you are in anguish. So Abraham just bluntly points out the case. You received good in life, and he received bad, and, and you didn't care to give him any of the things that you had. You totally ignored his situation, and, um, and the result is clear. You, you are in anguish as a result. You are separated. And in verse 26, he continues and, and shows us this picture of the great chasm. He says, And besides all this, between us and you there is a great chasm that has been fixed, in order that those who would pass from here to you are not able to, and none may cross from there to us. So though he just longs for a, a simple morsel, I mean a simple drop of water, the chasm is, is fixed. Lazarus, even if he wanted to, would not be able to take even a drip of water to Lazarus to, uh, to relieve him. See, the situation, like we said, uh, post-mortem is, is simply that you know, those in heaven can't help those in Hades, and those in Hades can't help those that are alive, and those that are in heaven can't help those that are alive. After we die, we're, 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 we're finished with all that we can do to affect eternity. We're given a window of opportunity in which we can bestow the blessing that God has given us on those around us, whether it be monetary or whether it be uh, spiritual. We're only given a, a period of time as as living human beings, that we're able to affect eternity. And so it's clear from the way that Abraham responds to uh, the rich man's request that our lives determine and decide our eternal position. And that position, once it's determined, cannot be reversed, can't be changed. Once it's done, it's done. It's not like uh, other things that happen in our life where maybe you uh, make a mistake on a report that you send to your boss, and you're like, oh wait, don't look at that report. I'm, you know, I've got, uh, I'll send you a second one uh, that's going to be the, the proper one. I sent you the wrong file. Or what, you know, like we can resolve some conflicts in this life as they, as they come up. We can, there's things that we can do to, to overcome them and, and to, uh, to resolve them, but you know, once you die, your eternal position, it's very clear from this, this scripture that your eternal position is fixed. There's no going back. There's no switching sides. There's a great chasm uh, between. So we see when once Lazarus was on the outside looking in to this rich man's lifestyle and wanting just a morsel of nourishment from him, now he is on the inside and the rich man is on the outside looking in. But it's a much worse situation. While the rich man was comforted with the things of this world for a time, uh, now Lazarus is comforted eternally in the presence of God, and he is the one that is without anything and in complete anguish, separated from the Lord. The rich man is now on the outside looking in. <clears throat> Verses 27 to 31 will wrap up our, our time together, and you know, I simply want to make this point with these last few verses, and that's, that's this, that uh, Jesus invites us to come inside. And as we've said with the past two points, uh, you know, the, the fact is we have a fixed period of time in our lives to, uh, to make decisions for the Lord and to 
share the Lord's, the, the good news of the Lord with others. But Jesus' call during our time on earth is, is come inside. Come inside. Come inside my kingdom. Come inherit what I have for you. The rich man tries to uh, find a way to, once he, once he realizes that he is fixed in his position, that there's no way for him to cross this chasm or to even get a drop of water uh, from the other side of, of, uh, of eternity, uh, he turns his thoughts from himself because he knows he's in torment. He knows he's stuck in this place forever and there's no hope. He turns his thoughts as he's speaking to Abraham to his family. And he says, well, if I, if I can't, you know, help myself in any way, if I can't even get a drip of water, then please, starting in verse 27, he says, then I beg you, Father, send him, Lazarus, that is, to my father's house, for I have five brothers, so that he may warn them, lest they come into this place of torment. Lazarus' heart and compassion goes out to his family and says, I don't want them to be here. This is even if we would be reunited, I don't want them to experience what I'm experiencing. I want them to be with Lazarus at his side, at Abraham's side, in eternity. Even if it means even more torment for me as I see them across the chasm, I want them there, not here. And so he says this to Abraham, I beg of you, send Lazarus to my father's house so that I may warn them about this place of torment. But Abraham says an a pretty interesting statement and a powerful one. He says, they have Moses and the prophets. Let them hear them. So essentially he's saying, listen, rich man, they have all that they need. They are, they are children of Israel. They know the, the, the things that Moses recorded and they know the words of the prophets. That's all they need to respond to what they need to respond to. That's all they need to, uh, to know where they're going. And as Christians, we look at that and think, well, don't they need to know Jesus? Well, yes, but before Jesus came, the Lord provided constantly. And so the Old Testament, the Moses and the prophets, is, is a, a, a clear representation of what is needed. We see that by the fact that Abraham is even in heaven. The fact is, Abraham's faith was credited to him as righteousness, even though Christ hadn't come. The truth is that Christ's death and resurrection not only pays for his present time while he was there and future, but also past individuals who had placed their faith and trust in the one true God. And so Abraham responds to his request to to send Lazarus to tell them, and, and we think that it might be in some sort of vision or something that he was requesting them to go, like appear to him in a dream or, or something and tell them about what that they need to make this decision. But Abraham says, no, no, they've, they've got Moses and they have the prophets. They have enough. So our question then is, what from the Old Testament should be so convincing that they would end up in the right place? And uh, the truth is, if we reflect on it just even briefly together, um, the Old Testament is a chronicle of man's depravity. Uh, and it's also a testimony that God is our Savior. That's throughout the Old Testament. If you look at story after story after story, the truth we see is that man is depraved. He is sinful man. He's in need of restoration. He's in need of help. 
And the truth that we see is that God is the Savior. So, uh, I mean, you could pick a story and look at, uh, look at Adam and Eve, right? The first story we have in the Bible. Adam takes of, Adam and Eve take of the apple, and they sin against the Lord's command to them to not take of it. We see that man is sinful. His heart is sinful, and he's in need of God. And what we see is that even though Adam and Eve deserved uh, death at that point, God gives them life. He restores them uh, to, to a place, a, a position that, hi, um, he restores them to a position of authority and um, gives them a new purpose. And uh, so God is the one that saves them. He, he comes and clothes them and gives them a new purpose in life. He didn't have to do that. He could have uh, rained judgment down immediately at that point. But instead, even though, uh, even though they, had, they had fallen and sinned, uh, God restores them to a, a place for his purpose and for his glory. God is the one that saves we see it even if you look at the story of Abraham, which you sort of referenced with Abraham being in heaven at this point. Um, Abraham's, you know, he, he takes his uh, son up, up the hill to sacrifice him as the Lord has commanded to take Isaac up and, and offer him as a sacrifice. And, um, and he, he gets there, and uh, as he's walking up the, the hill, Isaac asks the question, you know, how— what, what sacrifice are we going to give to the Lord? What, what are we going to do? And, uh, and Abraham just faithfully says, the Lord's going to provide. The Lord will provide the sacrifice that we need. And so they get there to the top, and um, as, as Abraham is about to be obedient and sacrifice his son there, because that's what God had asked him to do, God stops him and says, no, don't do it. I have another way. I have another plan. And in that moment, he had a, had a goat stuck in a thicket. And they took the goat and were able to sacrifice that instead. God preserved this, this line through Abraham. Um, and we see that, uh, that it's not man who saves, it's God who's the Savior. And that we are depraved. See it in the, in the, story, of, uh, in the story of Noah. Noah is in the midst of a generation that is uh, wicked and, uh, and sinful. And, and God says to Noah to build an ark when no rain had fallen on the earth and, and no boat had surely been conceived, but he gives him instructions to, to do so. And all Noah had to do was trust in God's word and do what he said. We see that man is depraved and, and God is the Savior. Noah builds the ark and, and his whole family is, is saved throughout the flood. Throughout the Old Testament and, and even the prophets we see, that the Old Testament is a chronicle of man's depravity, and it's a testimony that God is our Savior. So Abraham says to the rich man, listen, they have Moses and the prophets. Let them hear them. Let them obey the words that I've given to the people of Israel through Moses and the prophets, and they will know enough to have faith in God, not in sacrifices or rituals, not in humans, not in their own capabilities, but in the fact that they are sinful and God is Savior. So Moses and the prophets is enough for them. But this isn't enough for, this doesn't satisfy the rich man. So he, he comes back to Abraham and says, no, Father Abraham, if someone would just go to, him, go to them from the dead, surely they will repent. 
And Abraham says this, this powerful statement that closes our passage. He says, if they do not hear Moses and the prophets, neither will they be convinced if someone should rise from the dead. So, as you know, I mean, Jesus is looking forward to his cross. I mean, we're on a journey in this, in the context of what we're studying uh, to Jerusalem. That's where they're headed at this point. And Jesus, as he's telling this story, is telling it with a purpose. You have to respond to Moses and the prophets because even when I rise, and he's going to, that's what we're celebrating today in Easter, is that Christ is risen, that he's risen indeed. Even if he does, if you're not able to respond to Moses and the prophets, you're not going to respond even when I rise from the dead. It's not going to happen. You see, um, many at that time were like, uh, like one of us if we had a, a broken gas gauge. The truth is they did not acknowledge their sin. They had no gauge for it at all. They didn't understand that they were completely empty spiritually. They thought they were full because they had, you know, riches and power and influence and whatever. But the truth is, their gauge was broken, and they're empty. Like a person with a broken gas gauge, they had no recognition of the fact that they were completely spiritually empty. And even someone rising from the dead was not going to change that. If they had just listened to Moses and the prophets, they'd understood, reflected on, meditated on the law that points us to the fact that we cannot fulfill it. We cannot fulfill the law. We cannot do the deeds of the law. We are too broken. We're, we don't love God perfectly, as we've said so many times before, and we don't love others as we're called to love them. We're supposed to love them as we love ourselves. There's no way that we come close to that. We love ourselves way too much. We are completely deprived, depraved. And, and, um, and so if they don't recognize uh, that, that they are in need of God's help, from Moses and the prophets, they won't recognize their need of it, even if someone rises from the dead. The truth is we celebrate Easter because that fact that Christ is risen from the dead. And as, as Sam was even praying earlier, the truth is that our faith is completely in vain if he hadn't risen. It's Christ that through his resurrection, is inviting us to come inside. He has defeated death, and as a result, we can be restored to the Father. But without his resurrection, we have no hope. And Paul, like, like Sam was pointing out earlier in his prayer, Paul clearly puts this forth in 1 Corinthians fifteen thirteen to 19, and I'll read it for us. Um, it says this, But if there is no resurrection of the dead, then not even Christ has raised. And if Christ has not been raised, then our preaching is in vain, and your faith is in vain. We are even found to be misrepresenting God because we testified about God that he raised Christ, whom he did not raise if it is true that the dead are not raised. For if the dead are not raised, then not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile, and you are still in your sins. Then those who uh, have fallen asleep in Christ, have perished. And if, Christ, if in Christ we have hope in this life only, we of all people are to be most pitied. The fact is, uh, if Christ doesn't come, we remain in our sins. 
We have no way to atone for our sinful nature. We can't do it. A sacrifice was needed, and God prepared it from the beginning of time. When Adam and Eve fell, and he was, uh, God was giving out the, the judgments for man and for, and, and for Satan as a result of the situation, uh, he prophesies about the fact that, uh, that though, uh, though Satan will strike uh, the, seeds, the seed's heel, the seed of the woman's heel, Christ will bruise Satan's head. In the beginning of Genesis, he's looking forward to the fact that a sacrifice was going to be needed to defeat sin and death, and that sacrifice was Christ on the cross. He defeats sin and death by rising from the dead. That passage from Paul doesn't end there. He goes on to say that Christ, in fact, is risen. In 1 Corinthians 15, 20 and 22, he says this, But in fact, Christ has been raised from the dead, the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. For as by a man came death, by a man also the resurrection of the dead. For as in Adam all die, so also in Christ shall all be made alive. Christ is risen. It's a glorious truth that restores us to God. It's our only hope. And if it not be true, then we're to be pitied above all men. But it is true. Christ is risen, and we are restored to the Father by faith in Christ alone. The truth is, while Jesus sets up this picture of a a rich man and a poor man, regardless of wealth, when we're in Christ, we are rich. It's like I said earlier, it's not like uh, just the poor individuals in this life are just going to flip and be the ones in heaven in the next life, and the rich individuals in this life are going to flip and be uh, the, the ones in Hades in the next life. That's not it at all. He's, he's sharing a picture that clearly demonstrates the example that he's trying to, to tell us, and, and that's that we are rich in Christ. Regardless of our wealth, our, our faith and our, um, our hope is found in Jesus Christ and Him alone. And as we've learned from this passage, being rich in Christ comes with its responsibility. Just as being rich in wealth comes with its responsibility from God. As God has given you much, He's, uh, he's, he's uh, given you much responsibility with what He's given you. And in the same way in our faith, as, as God has given us much in Christ, we are, we are the righteousness of God, as we've said so many times, that comes with so much responsibility. And as we mentioned, the, the fact is, we have to take action where and while we're able. God has gifted each one of us as, uh, as followers with the ability to, uh, to share His good news. And in varying ways, we've been given different gifts to share the love of the Lord, and we only have a period of time in which to do that. Once we pass away, we are in heaven, and those that we care about, if they haven't come to the Lord, are separated from God. And there's nothing we can do about it after we die. The only time we can do something about it is now. So we have to... um, We have to encourage ourselves to be active about sharing this this 
richness that God has blessed us with, with those around us. As Christ is raised, it's great news. We have to be uh, looking for ways in which we can share that. We have to take action in this life where and while we're able for the poor that we're able to help and for the lost that we're able to help because in the next life we won't have the opportunity to do so. So Christ's call to us is, is simply this, to come inside. Step into the riches and the inheritance that I have for you. Christ has an amazing plan for each of us. He wants to use us for his glory in this life. He wants to use us to spread his love to those around us. The fact is, he, he didn't come down to earth and spend 33 years on earth for no purpose. He didn't come to, to be a moral example to, to others so that, uh, so that we'll have a better understanding of what it is to relate to each other. He didn't uh, do it so uh, we could have a, a philosophy to better understand our, our lives and how we're to operate. He did it because we are depraved people and we're in need of repentance. We're in need of a perfect sacrifice on the cross for our sin. That's the only thing that will restore us to God. His resurrection is, is celebrated. We celebrate it today because we needed it so much. May we be like Lazarus who understood that God helps and that it's only God that helps. We cannot help ourselves. The things of this world won't help us. The materials, the, uh, the food, the drink, the jobs, the friends, the relationships, family, none of these things will bring us to the Lord. And that's why Christ came. Because it's only by Him coming, giving up His whole self on the cross for us that we're able to be restored to God. He wants to bring us in. He's inviting us to come inside. To be His people. To represent Him in this world as long as we're able. May we be good stewards May we be like Lazarus who knows in his heart that God and God alone is the one that cares. God and God alone is the one that saves. God is the one who helps. Let's pray. God, we thank you that you are so much bigger than us. Well, we don't want to wallow in it, but the truth is that we are nothing without you. We're helpless. Even if we kept every letter of the law, we know in our hearts that we would do it pridefully. And that itself would even be a sin. Lord, there's nothing we can do to earn our salvation except to place our faith 
in Christ alone. We thank you, God. We celebrate today. Lord, because you came, you lived among us, you gave yourself on the cross for us. Lord, you restore all those that would place their faith in you. You've defeated death and you are risen. Lord, may we live in light of that fact. Help us, God, because you're a God that helps. Help us to help those around us. It's not in our strength that we're able to do what you've called us to do. We depend on you for all things, God. You are the one who helps. Thank you for all this. In Christ's name, amen.